morning and welcome again. It is good to be together to serve our Lord, to praise him together, and to thank him together for all he is, for who he is, uh, for what he has done and will do. We are so grateful with Steve and Ashley Brown for God's kindness in bringing this new life into their home, and we pray with them for their great opportunity to influence uh, their child for Christ. Uh, God is merciful and he is good, and we praise him for this new life uh, that he has granted to them. For many of us, it's been a heavy week, and our hearts have been heavy, not only with the chaos in our world, but also the loss of a beloved friend and mentor and pastor. And it's times like these that we need the word. We always need the word. But especially in these moments of suffering and loss, when we have questions, when we feel insecure and uncertain, God's word is like a balm, like a salve to heal us and to help us. So we want to go again to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, Pastor Jim and Jenny are away at the funeral, and then Pastor Jonathan and Annette are down with family uh, this week. So 1 Peter chapter 2. In our culture, identity seems to be more important than ever before. Have you noticed all the different ways people use to identify themselves? A quick look at social media and you will find a literal plethora of different ways that people define their gender. Male, female, gender neutral, non-binary, third gender, two-spirit, ah-gender, pan-gender, and that's just to name a few. Others identify themselves according to their hobbies or their profession their marital or parental status. A few of these, world's best salesman. Exhausted mother of four, and one of the children is over 35 years old. (laughs) Wife and chef. Geriatric millennial. Geriatric athlete. Bookworm. Sad, lonely, and bad at math. But in the midst of the identity craze that our culture seems to be so utterly consumed with, I wonder if we have stopped to consider, how does God see you? How does God see us who are his church on this earth? Now, for believers, for those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ, we have the very answer of how God views us right here in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. So let's look at it together to discover how God identifies us, his people. We'll begin reading in verse 9, where the Bible says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
But now, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the living word of God to us, his people. Now, in the previous verses, as we discovered last week, Peter told us that for those of us who've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are individual stones. We have our individualities. We have our own uniqueness. We have our own color and shape and different sizes and and marks and blemishes and tarnishes. And God takes each one of us and like a bricklayer, he lays us brick by brick to build this beautiful spiritual house. It's a wonderful picture of how God unifies his church to accomplish his purpose. That's the spiritual house that God is building. And for those who reject and disobey Jesus, he becomes something to trip over or something that they stumble over. So now Peter in verse 9 and 10 pivots back to focusing on us who are believers, who've put our faith in Jesus Christ. And in these verses, we find such immense encouragement. And we become rooted in a firm, unshakable foundation. But we also learn that with the privileges of being changed by the gospel come the responsibilities to live for him. And we'll identify with John the Apostle who said his commands are not burdensome as we look through these two verses. Even if God calls us to suffer in our world because of our love for him, the gospel changes everything. And in verse 9, we see our shared identity. I warned you it's been a heavy week. (laughs) We have our shared identity, and we have a list here of identity markers. Peter starts by calling us a few names, and these are good names. You know, sometimes when you get called names, you don't like those, but these are good names. And he starts in verse 9 by saying to us, you are a chosen race. Now, that seems like unusual language for us because of how we hear the word race used today. If we take a look back, though, at verse 4, Peter uses the same word to highlight God's initiative, God's working. It's God's choice in bringing us into his family, a glorious truth that holds us secure And Peter reinforces this identity for us here by alluding to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, where God commits himself to caring for his chosen people, Israel. And the meaning here is the same in the sense that God has committed himself to us, and we are committed to him, to love him, to know him, to follow him. This makes us distinct, doesn't it? Makes us distinct from unbelievers because we no longer belong to the world. We belong to God now. And together, we're united in this common heritage. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. 
So this surpasses, this unique heritage, this identity, it surpasses any other identity markers we have. It surpasses language differences, cultural differences, economic position, appearance, or geographical location. And in all circumstances, but especially times of difficulty, we find great help, great hope, and great encouragement in the reality that we're not alone. We're in a united body. We're a chosen race, a chosen group of people. Don't let that word race throw you. It means a chosen group of people. Peter describes us not only as a chosen group, but also here a royal priesthood. I want you to think about this. That seems, again, a little bit odd to us as far as a designation. I haven't seen any Twitter handles that say part of the royal priesthood. Uh, But that that would be an okay designation if, if the person is a professing believer. How are we royal? We're royal because of who our Savior is. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will rule and reign supreme for all eternity. And if you are a child of God, you are his sons and daughters. You're a daughter of the king. You're a son of the king. That makes us royalty. Now, I don't think you should probably expect to be called your highness or your majesty, even by those who love you most. Uh, Most unreasonable expectation, in fact. But we're also servants of the King, the Most High. Peter combines these two phrases from Exodus 19 where God makes a covenant with his people. This is what he says to them. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Now, as you may remember, the primary responsibility of priests was to serve the Lord. They served God, and they served God in various ways. Now, Peter has already called us a holy priesthood. If you look back up at verse 5, you'll see that near the end of verse 5. And he continues by saying that as a holy priesthood, we offer spiritual sacrifices. So while the priests in the Old Testament had various responsibilities, their primary serving role was to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. However, since Jesus became the once for all sacrifices, as his priests today, we don't have to offer animal sacrifices any longer. So much to be grateful for. But just as the priests served God through giving animal sacrifices, so we serve Jesus in a variety of ways today. Some of these include spreading the gospel, giving to meet the needs of the poor, giving to meet the needs of those right here in our own body. It's teaching God's word, not just in a Sunday school class, but at home with your family members. It's loving his people. It's giving him praise through prayer, through testimony and singing. So everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is a priest to serve him forever. Kind of an interesting concept. And Peter takes us right here for us to recognize this is what your identity is in God. When God sees you, this is what he sees. Is you're a priest to serve him, to give spiritual sacrifices. And we're royalty because we are children of the king of kings. Now, Peter combines this title of royal priesthood with 
this third designation of a holy nation. We are a holy nation. To be right down honest with you, holy has nothing to do with moaning in low tones and wearing drab colors. Uh, There's a lot of unique ideas out there about what holiness is, but in its most simple form, holiness is being set apart. As children of God, we're set apart. We're set apart from sin. God broke that power for us to be in bondage to sin, to give in to sin, to yield to sin. You think back over this last seven days and all the sins that you committed. If you're a child of God, you don't have to sin again. He's broken that power. He set you apart from that. But God didn't just save us from sin. He also made us holy. And as a group of people set apart, think about this, we form an international nation with all other believers around the world. I was just reading an update from our gospel partner in Ghana and seeing how God is working through their ministry to plant a church in a country that even the U.S. State Department warns Americans not to go to. God is at work forming an international nation. So just like we have us who are here at Subaru Baptist Church and we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and we're now the part, we're part of the body of Christ. So all over the world, this is happening. You have brothers and sisters. You've got family members all across the world. So on your next trip to Europe, you can just call up one of them and say, hey, I'm coming over, bro. Can I stay with you? Actually, I don't think it'll work that way, so you might need another backup plan there. But we have family members all across our world because we're all united in this same identity. Whether you live on the African continent or on another continent on this planet, you're part of God's family, an international nation with believers all over the world. So we're all called to live lives of separation from the world and from sin and to dedicate ourselves to serving God. Now, for those living a holy life, you know what this means. You know what it's like to go to the company Christmas party and be the only one not to get drunk. You know what it's like to be with your unbelieving family members and be ridiculed because you're going to need to go to church. And so you've committed yourself to worshiping God with his people and you know what it's going to be like to be ostracized, to be made fun of and called names because you are choosing a set-apart or holy life as you've been called to do. You know what this is like at work when they want you to go to that party and because of your separateness from sin, you choose not to. You know what it's like to walk away from the unwholesome conversation at school. Because you know God doesn't want you to talk like that. And we can look at that and we can feel like, you know, so persecuted over holiness. But when God calls us a holy people, when he separates us from sin and ungodliness, it is a treasure to him. This designation is valuable and honorable before God. It means you're fulfilling the very meaning of holy being set apart from sin, set apart from ungodliness and unrighteousness, set apart to Jesus Christ to put off the works of the flesh and to put on righteousness, holiness, and godliness. 
And we can expect to be ostracized and shunned and singled out because by God's design, by his design, we're different. We're seeking to grow towards God and away from our sin day by day. That is such a distinctive marker of God's people. I don't know unbelievers who wake up in the morning and start their day saying, God, please use me today to accomplish your purpose. I don't know unbelievers who search the scriptures because they want to grow their relationship with Jesus. Now, we pray they read the Bible so that they can start that relationship with Jesus. But this is so different. Our whole worldview, the way we see current events, the way we view people, it's so radically different because we are a distinct or called out people. So the way we even view things like our time and our money is so different. We're not only identified as a chosen group of people, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, but you'll see the fourth designation Peter gives to us is a people for his own possession. This description identifies believers as belonging solely to God. We are not our own, but we belong to God. It is God who sent Jesus to save us. It is God who cares and watches over every detail of my life. And Peter again takes us to the Old Testament, to Isaiah the prophet, where God says, The people I formed for myself will declare my praise. We also see this in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul who says the same. You were bought with a price, so glorify God. Glorify God in your body. So how could you, how could I as a believer ever feel as though no one cares for you? We shouldn't feel unloved when we mind the full depths of the reality that we are a special people called out from all the other peoples on earth by God himself. So rehearse these realities. I belong to God and I am his possession, dearly loved and greatly cared for. But as Peter's original audience knows, it's not always going to feel or appear that way for God's people. Remember, Peter's writing to people who are living in persecution. They're suffering because they are these things. They're suffering because they are set apart from their culture and ungodliness. So while living here on earth, you won't always be treated as a cherished possession of the Most High Almighty God. You're not going to always be treated like royalty. And the world around you is going to call you some rather nasty, unrepeatable names. But here, our minds are redirected to gaze fully at our Lord and Savior. And to show us again that we are a people for his possession. Regardless, regardless of how we're treated while living on this earth. For most people, buying their first home takes a lot of work, planning, and sacrifice. Uh, perhaps you remember buying your first home, or maybe you're in the process of, of buying your first home, and you know what it's like. You purposely put away money, you sacrifice things you want, places you'd like to go, people you'd like not to see, in order to put money away for this house. 
Sometimes you even sacrifice things you need. And the holes uh, in the clothes get a little bit more uh, frequent. And you delay buying different things because you want to buy this first house. It takes sacrifice. It takes diligence. You work a few extra hours at work so that you can put a little bit more away so you can make that down payment and buy that house. That house becomes something special. And that day that you meet to sign those papers is a treasured day. And that point where you get the key to your house and it becomes yours after all that work and effort, all that planning, that house is a prized possession of great value. You've worked diligently for it. It's cherished and in a far deeper and greater way, we are our Lord's possession. Dearly loved, greatly valued, So what are we afraid of? How could we feel lonely? But we do. If you're a believer, you're part of something that really is beyond amazing. You're part of this international group of specially chosen, called out people. And you have family all over this world because of your shared identity as a child of God. We were created and saved from ourselves and our sin, as Peter tells us now, in order to proclaim the greatness of our God. God saves us from our sin, and then he gives us this great privilege to proclaim the glories, the excellencies, the greatness of our God. And We celebrate and share with the world what a great God he is. How do we do this? We proclaim his greatness simply by telling others what he has done and what he wants to do and is willing to do for them. We proclaim his greatness by living daily the reality of being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We proclaim his greatness when we worship him and choose to live according to his word. I know sometimes we feel like you know, I'm just not that important and nobody knows me and we can, we can go into that self-pity party type of wallowing. But I want you to think back to this passage when those moments come. Because God says you simply living according to his word day by day is proclaiming his greatness. You get to do that. I get to do that every day as his people. We proclaim his greatness when we share his gospel. We proclaim his greatness when we're characterized by kindness and graciousness. We proclaim his greatness when we're kind and gracious to those who aren't kind and aren't gracious to us. Because he has brought us from darkness to light. And and what is this darkness? This darkness is simply ignorance of God. It's ignorance of his ability to rescue. Our world is lost in darkness. Darkness. It it doesn't take us too many ways to look around our world and say it is lost and hopelessly in darkness. It needs what? The light. It needs the light of the gospel to shine in people's hearts. And you and I, as God's people, get to do that. We get to do that every day. We have multiple opportunities right here as a group of believers in our community to shine the light of Jesus Christ into this world that is so dark. This this light means knowledge 
of God and his gospel, his rescue of sinful people like you and like me from the darkness. It also communicates the idea of his purity, his cleanness, his holiness. And just think of how refreshed your spirit is when you're around fellow believers who declare the greatness of our God. You know what I'm talking about. People who, have, who don't seem to have any struggle weaving in and out of conversation just how great our God is. And you walk away from those conversations and you've been built up and revitalized in your spirit, even in the darkest moments of life, because they can't help but to declare the greatness of our God. They're living according to the purpose that God has called them to. They share of his working in their hearts. They tell of his faithfulness and kindness. They give praise to him with their choices, with their words. It has nothing to do with their personality, nothing to do with their hairstyle. It has nothing to do with their winning smile or their well-dressed physique. It only has to do with their focus being on proclaiming the virtues, the characteristics and the works of our great God. And you know, in this body, you've experienced this, haven't you? You know how on occasion we get together for our sing, praise, and prayer service. And that's such a reinvigorating time for us. Where we focus on who God is, what he has done, and specifically what he's doing right here in our own body. We come away from those times rejoicing. And we especially love being together here on Sunday mornings for this corporate worship service. I try not to do this because I want to do my part, but occasionally I stop singing so I can hear you, my fellow believers, singing God's praises. Now, if we all do that, that's not going to be a help to anybody. So can we time it a little bit if, uh, if we're going to do that? Uh, the, the reality is that when we come together and I give my voice the best I can, whether I think I sound good or my neighbor thinks I sound bad, that doesn't matter because I'm made to proclaim his greatness. So let me encourage you as the people of God gathered here at Subaru Road to sing. Sing like nobody else cares except about your love for proclaiming the greatness of God. Sing whether you think it sounds good or anybody else thinks it sounds good. Don't ever let that be an excuse for you not to, with all your heart and soul, give praise to our great God. It's one of the ways, one of the ways we proclaim his greatness. And all of us leave this service refreshed in our spirits and our hearts. Why? Because we spent time doing what we were made to do. Praising glorifying, proclaiming the greatness of our God. Now, these many realities show us the great contrast of life before coming to Christ and what it looks like now that we have lived for Jesus. I, on occasion, I don't like to do this always because it can get expensive, but on occasion I like to watch those shows where they take a home that nobody seems to want to live in 
and they, they take you on a tour of the exterior and they show you, you know, it's missing some siding and the paint has faded and usually there's all manner of infestation of things that creep and crawl upon the earth. And then they take you inside and, and you know, they have to watch their step because they're, you know, you might fall through here or um, you realize that that vanity in the bathroom is, you know, from yesterday's century and so they take you through and they show you this house and you're thinking, oh, who would want to live there? And then they take you through the process, which is amazing to me because God has not gifted me in these things. And so I'm always impressed by even things that most people would not be impressed by. And so then they take you through the process of pulling out the floor and bringing in the exterminator and putting some paint on. And uh, they take you through the process of you know, totally remodeling this house. And then there's the big reveal day. And as you watch this and you see this place, you're thinking to yourself, we, we better load up the truck and get moved there pretty fast because that place is going to sell, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to live in that place? And they've taken such thoughtful care and where everything goes and the different decoration scheme. And it's a wonderful, beautiful, now treasured place for someone to live. And that's exactly what verse 10 is about. Our changed identity. Our changed identity. Verse 10, once you were not the people of God, but now you, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what you were, but now this is what you are. The identities totally changed, remodeled from the inside out. And Peter here uses the words and ideas of the Old Testament prophet Hosea to explain just how much love, mercy, and kindness we have received from God. Before coming to Christ, you were under the just condemnation of a justice-loving God. A God who judges without impartiality. That's hard for us to understand because that's not the world we live in. But God sees, and he is a justice-loving God. You were doomed. You were doomed to an eternity of torment and torture. You were relegated to the kingdom of darkness, emptiness, hopelessness. But once you put your faith in Christ, you received his mercy and his pardon. You were brought from darkness to light. Forever to enjoy a relationship with the wonderful, merciful Savior. And now you have your identity with Christ and his people. You belong. You can never say again you don't belong. You have no identity. You do if you're a believer. Your identity is with Christ and his people. You belong to God. So all we have and all we need is Christ. And all we are as God's people is a gift from him. It's through his amazing grace we are what we are. It's by his immense mercy. We are his children and not still his enemies. We know forgiveness. We know compassion. We know mercy. 
and real, genuine, lasting, unchanging love because of what God has done for us. We cannot get away from this. We live in a loveless world. Our world says, I love you if you think and act the way that I want you to. But you think about God. Before you came to him, you were his enemy. Now that's real love. You want to see what love is. Do you love me when I really act like what I am? Do you love me when I don't treat you how I ought to? Do you love me when I don't talk to you the way that I should? That's what demonstrates true, enduring love. And think about the love of Jesus for us who believe. How many times have we failed him? How many times have we ignored and disobeyed him and demeaned the very God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior? How could we ever get over this? And to those of you who listen today and have not placed your faith in him, he will be your savior. All you do is what we have done here in this church body, and that is to turn to him, acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging our need for him and only him. And we have found him to be our Savior and Lord and never failed his people once. We now know what real love is. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Nothing and no one can ever take us from this exalted identity. It is God, the creator, the controller, and the sustainer of heaven and earth who sees us as his treasured possession. So what reasons then do you have to be afraid and anxious? Peter writes to a suffering, persecuted church who needed the assurance, just like we do, of their exalted identity. God had not forgotten or ignored them. He wasn't up in heaven wondering what happened to them. He loved them, cared for them, and was kindly affectionate towards them. He wanted them to know, just like he wants us to know, of their security with him. Even though for them, there was immediate pain and suffering because of their love. And he sees and he cares for us just the same. So we have no cause for worry or fear but only to proclaim his greatness. So your identity then is in Christ. It's not in your heritage. It is not in the color of your skin. It's not in your gender. It's not in your friendships. It's not in your profession or family status. Your identity is not even in your sin struggles. Let us as a redeemed people of God be careful not to characterize and identify ourselves simply by our sin struggles. When you see yourself, see yourself as God sees you. Living in a culture that stumbles over Christ, who disobeys his word, who demeans him and his followers, even to the point of persecution, can be discouraging. It can be scary, can't it? It can be demoralizing. Knowing that greater suffering and hardship will come for those who believe and obey Jesus, it's not always appealing to us. So God gives to us in this passage the remarkable spiritual abundance God's people have in him. It points us to the reality of God's love, of God's care, of God's provision. He hasn't left us empty. He's provided all we need for life and for godliness. 
He provides hope and comfort and constant encouragement when we struggle to endure. It shows us we can continue. We can endure. We can trust our faithful God because we have an exalted identity. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says about us. The God of heaven, the creator of all things, the God of eternity, the Lord high potentate, sees me as his treasured possession. So what happens when you feel alone? When you become anxious, when you're worried and fearful, what about this week? When you feel unloved, when you feel forgotten, come back. Come back to your exalted identity. Come back and rehearse to yourself, I am part of a chosen race. I am a royal priesthood. I am part of God's holy nation. God sees me as a valuable, treasured possession, and nothing can change that. I get to proclaim his greatness to everyone I interact with each day. I was doomed to destruction, but he called me from darkness to his light. So I am part of God's people who are a family living all over the world. I have received unimaginable and unparalleled mercy. I am part of God's people. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, our hearts are overwhelmed, not by our circumstances, though they are challenging. We feel the heaviness of our day, but we feel you lifting the load because of the exalted identity we have in you. It doesn't matter how we're treated while we live on this earth. We're called exiles in 1 Peter 1. But here, we're shown, we're treasured. We're your treasured possession. So our hearts are full. You've humbled us. We know we're not worthy. We know what sin we have committed. We know how much we demean and defame you. And yet you have given us this exalted identity, so we're humbled by this. We thank you for the joy that you give to us in allowing us to proclaim your greatness. You are great and greatly to be praised. Your works are unsearchable. So we stand in awe and amazement that you would love us. That you would change us from the inside out and allow us to have a part in your work right here on the earth. We thank you that we are your people. 
and nothing and no one can ever change that. So to you, our God and Father, forever be the glory. Amen.